Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be completing our look at Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia, originally written in 1781, published in 1785, and then going through several editions after that. And as far as I know, it's never really been out of print. It's always been available now, of course, in multiple multiple, multiple editions for students and scholars and just interested readers. Um, it's the only book uh, Thomas Jefferson published during his lifetime. He published, you know, reports and and documents and things like that. But but this is his first book length, the only book length thing he published during his his lifetime. Um, uh, in the previous episode, we looked at the first six queries. Now, the notes on the state of Virginia is a is a response to. Uh, uh, his name was Francois Marbois, secretary to the French legation uh, in Virginia. So he, he sent like a list of 23 questions. And then the notes on the state of Virginia essentially are Jefferson's responses to that based on scholarship he had available to him. And it's also got a lot of his interesting commentaries on various aspects of Virginia's racial uh, history and its and its political history. So I think most of the interest we have in notes of the state of Virginia come from what it says about 18th century American views of science, or in particular Jefferson's views about science and the natural world and, and ecological change and all those things. It, it's very much a useful document in, in kind of environmental history. M- many of us come to this out of an interest in to find, to find out what Jefferson has to say about race. And of course, Jefferson had a very complex view on slavery and race that that reached down to the personal level in his case um he uh if we want to know anything about jefferson's sex life after the death of his wife we know it involves sally hemmings one of his slaves whom by whom he fathered several children so his views on race are really hard to disconnect from that but it's not something he talked about publicly so if you just look at jefferson as a public figure you know it's he doesn't talk about this, but he does talk about race. So that's a window into that relationship. Maybe it's a very cloudy one, but it's the best we have from his own point of view. A lot of scholarship about Jefferson talks about like the, the, the hidden Jefferson or the private Jefferson or, you know, the private life of Jefferson. And we try to get at that, but there's always going to be this block because so much of his private life was tied up into this intimate relationship with one of his slaves. And he just didn't talk about it. Um, so, but race is a big thing as with Indians. I talked a little bit about Indians in the previous, previous episode. And then also, I think, especially in this part, we get a window into Virginia's political history and Jefferson's feelings about Virginia's political history and therefore the political history of America overall. I think at the end of the day, what this document is really trying to do is to establish a distinctive, uh, American characteristics contrasted to the, to Europe. In everything from its its manners and its customs to its ecology and its environment and its agriculture and its attitudes towards farming and commerce and urban life and all those kinds of things. At the end of the day, Jefferson's really trying to establish a distinctive American path forward. Uh, now, of course, America's path forward would not follow the Jeffersonian ideal entirely, but the Jeffersonian ideal, the agrarian ideal, the, the fascination with the self-sufficient worker, the self-sufficient farmer, in contrast to the 
kind of industrial urban worker, which he already saw emerging in, in Europe, is, of course, a big key part. That, that contrast is a key part of American identity. And for some people, it's, it's, it's a key reason why the United States never developed a strong socialist movement. Uh, so I think that's really what this this document's about, by and large. Um, so, anyways, in the first uh, in the last episode, I looked at the first six queries, and that covered about eighty pages or so. I'll look at the last hundred pages of notes on the state of Virginia today, which will be query seven through through thirty two. Obviously, a lot of these are quite quite short. Um, I think only a couple of these are, are very significant. So we'll be able to go through a lot of these queries very quickly. But most of these have something interesting to tell us, actually. It's it's not the most, they're not banal. Um, now, some of them are, are kind of dated, and they're about, like, towns and rivers, geographical features in Virginia, which are kind of fun to look at, especially if you know anything about Virginia or you live there, which, which I didn't do. Um, but, you know, I think there's not much here that's really outright boring um but some of it may be a little bit technical for some readers but the really juicy parts are really really juicy and that makes this document uh, one we have to go back and and read if we want to fully understand jefferson's contribution to american letters all right so let's just jump right in with query number seven query seven is on climate but it's got a really interesting uh way it's worded um a notice of all what can increase the progress of human knowledge. Um, that's the question, and it's tied to climate. And so really, this is about the climate of Virginia. It's about the rains and the temperatures. And, and here we really see Jefferson being a pretty good scientist, collecting data, uh, making essentially an almanac a record over the years. And he actually identified climate change taking place. Quote, a change in our climate, however, is taking place very sensibly. Both heats and colds are becoming much more moderate within the memory even of the Middle Age. Snows are less frequent and less deep. They do not often lie below the mountains more than one, two, three days, and very rarely a week. They're remembered to have been formerly frequent, deep, and of long continuance. The elderly inform me that the earth used to be covered with snow about three months in every year, end quote. Which is just a fascinating um, acknowledgement that the, that the climate's changing in, in, in Jefferson's uh, lifetime and the evidence for that is like, the memory of old people, which of course is, um, you know, one is actually the opposite. The reason we can't really be confident about climate change is people have, I guess, when we say it's getting warmer, right? People's memory of that, even old people's memory of that, it's it's a bit awkward, right? Like, you know, it's it's hard to really identify if it's colder or warmer over long periods of time without like a scientific record. Right. If we just base it on memory, it, it's, it tends to be quite faulty. But so often we think, well, it's not. It doesn't feel it's getting warmer. It doesn't feel the climate's changing. When in fact it is, if we actually look at the the data. But um, there's just a little little snapshot of, of of an awareness of climate change in Jefferson's own time. But I think overall, the interesting in this section for me is how Jefferson accumulated data and, and went to many different sources for gathering data for understanding of climate. And that gets to the, the, the main question, like, how do we develop knowledge about something like climate? And it comes out that you just have to collect the data and apply, you know, study it scientifically, look for patterns, look for, you know, general trends. And that's what you can do. And, you know, Jefferson wasn't a climate scientist or a meteorologist by any means, but he, he understood that with something like climate, you had to collect a lot of data and do the best you could to, to analyze trends. 
Query 8 is, is just about population, and this is also very interesting. He, he talks about the growth of Virginia's population, obviously it grew from the white population anyways. The Indian population declined precipitously thanks to European-introduced diseases. But the white population and the African pop and African American population did increase uh, significantly over Jefferson's lifetime and from the settlement from the origin of English settlement in Virginia. He does predict. He also engages in a, in a conversation about population futures here, seeing Virginia to soon be as densely populated as as England. But he gets into this conversation about culture and immigration, which I think is very relevant to our own conversations in, in early 21st century America. He says, thinking about population futures, he writes, yet I am persuaded it is a greater number than the country spoken of considering how much inerable land it contains, can clothe and feed without a material change in the quality of their diet. But are there no inconveniences to be thrown into the scales against the advantage expected from a multiplication of numbers by the importation of foreigners? It is for the happiness of those united in society to harmonize as much as possible in matters which they must of necessity transact together. Civil government being the sole object in forming societies. Its administration must be conducted by common consent. Every species of government has its specific principles. Ours, perhaps, are more particular than those of others in the universe. It is a composition of the freest principles of the English Constitution, with others derived from natural right and natural reason. To these, nothing can be more opposed than the maxims of absolute monarchy. Yet, from such are we to expect the greatest number of immigrants. They will bring with them the principles of their governments. They will leave and bide in their earlier use. Or, if able to throw them off, they will be in exchange for unbound licentiousness passing, as is usual, from one extreme to another. It would be a miracle were they to stop precisely at the point of temperate liberty, end quote. And he goes on with this for quite a while, but basically he's saying immigrants are going to bring in their culture and immigrants are going to bring in a culture that's foreign to us and corruptive to what we're trying to do here in America. And um, he doesn't recommend a wall necessarily, but he does think a natural increase of white Virginians population will be more than enough to, to get to the population level we want. And we don't need immigrants who are going to bring in licentiousness and other ideas, ideas that may corrupt our experiment in liberty. Not one of the most open-minded and uh, benevolent statements by Thomas Jefferson, um, who, of course, his movement in 1800 was inspired in large part by like Irish Republicans and and, and other people who wanted a revolution in, in England, in Britain during the era of the French Revolution, they didn't get it. And many of them migrated to America where they got involved in various labor movements and the Jeffersonian movement and, and on and on. Eventually, the same kind of thing will happen with the formation of the Republican Party. So um, I think he certainly underestimates how much these immigrants could be committed to a project of, of liberty and representative government. Um, I mean, in many cases, that's why they left Europe was to get away from absolute monarchy, not to bring it to America. Nine is about militia. Now, we, we need to remember that uh, this was written in 1781 when the war was still going on. Uh, and these records of the militia and its cost were at a time when all the eligible males were in the militia. Uh, so it's just something to keep in mind when we look at this. But, you know, Jefferson seemed to believe here in the necessity of of an armed militia 
and the necessity of a force of, of all citizens participating in, in regular service through the militia. Query 10 is about the Virginia Marine, which seems to have consisted of only one boat. Um, as with the questions about towns, Jefferson's just sort of says, well, we don't really have that. It's the same with the Marine here. It's just a brief mention of, of the Navy as such as Virginia had. Query 11 gets specifically to the question of Indians. He talks about Indians in Query 6, which is about flora and the fauna and the mineral wealth of Virginia. And then he jumps into a conversation about Indians. And I dealt with that in the last episode. This is a more extended conversation of the Indian tribes, historical and current in Virginia. So he has a historical. Uh, one thing I, I pointed out last time is he does seem to, to acknowledge the historicity of, of Native Americans, unlike some Enlightenment thinkers, especially from Europe, who tended to just say, oh, they're all the noble savage or something, and they're kind of like trapped in some kind of savage past. Jefferson had to have been aware of their historicity living in America. And evidence of that is the fact that, you know, tribes that were strong and powerful when English men first came to Virginia, to Virginia were gone by the time he's alive. Uh, he does take on two interesting questions here, which are probably worthy of closer examination. One is uh, the question of, of Indian architecture, the way he, what he says it here is Indian monuments. And he says, I don't see any Indian monuments, and I'm not going to give you credit for, quote, arrow points, stone hatchets, stone pipes, and half-shapen images, end quote. He's looking for large-scale relics and, and architecture and like buildings and walls and that kind of stuff that can point to a civilization. And he doesn't see it. Um, he talks about different things you might look for. Um, sepulchers, you know, burial grounds, things like that. Now, obviously, Native Americans created all sorts of outstanding architecture throughout the, the Americas, but Jefferson doesn't, he's really only interested in, in Virginia, and he just doesn't see much that impresses him. The closest he gets is a little bit of a conversation about uh, various burial grounds that, that he's observed and, and been able to document. So there's something there, but um, large-scale scale monumental architecture seems to be missing. The second question of interest would be about the origin of of the Americans and and when. And he, he seems to mostly get it right. He he traces really looking at physical features. He traces the the origin of Indians to Asia. And then he asks the question like about connections between languages. Did languages also come over and then culture perhaps carried with it with the language? But he does he does He's a bit saddened by the fact that there isn't really libraries and written a written record for many of the North American Indians that would allow him to allow people. He probably wouldn't have done it, but allow people to actually study and investigate the the literary heritage and the intellectual heritage of of the Indians. As I talked about last time, he he doesn't he he doesn't his racism towards Indians is very different than his racism towards black people where he does see Indians of having like intellectual prowess in capacity. They're just in this kind of noble savage state, which is not how he sees black people, as we'll see uh, later on. Now, query 12 is about towns. And once again, Jefferson is making a case for Virginia as being a state of villages and farms, not being, a, you know, of cities. So he just sort of ignores entirely the fact that they're saying there aren't any really cities here. Quote, there are other places at which like some of the foregoing 
The laws have said there shall be towns, but nature has said there shall not, and they remain unworthy of enumeration. Norfolk will probably be the emporium of all the trade of the Chesapeake Bay and its waters, and a canal of ten or eight or ten miles will bring to it all of all that the upper male sounds in its waters. Secondary to this place are towns at the head of the tidewaters, to wit Petersburg and Appomattox, on Appomattox, Richmond on James River, Newcastle on York River. From the distribution will be be to subordinate situations of the county. Essentially what Jefferson's saying here is Virginia doesn't need cities, we don't have cities, and we don't want them. So um, then we get to query 13, which I think it's the longest, or maybe just second to query six in, in the notes on the state of Virginia. And this is on the constitution of the state. And this does explore the political history of Virginia. So it's, it's one you're going to want to, to study if you want to get a window into how Jefferson saw the political history of his own state. Now he goes back and, and talks about the rights established. Well, first, the, actually the Virginia Company and those early charters. But then the real rights established by the English Civil War, which he gives a lot of credit to, to establishing a political culture in Virginia on uh, freedom of trade and, and various liberties. Uh, so this is a. Uh, so this was laws passed in 1651 by Cromwell after the, the English Civil War. And this is kind of the new new charter or whatever for or the new uh, kind of the document of Virginian government at the time. And here's one of the passages in that document, which is reprinted for us in this book. That ye people of Virginia have free trade, as ye people of England do enjoy all places with all nations according to ye laws of that commonwealth, and that the Virginia shall enjoy all privileges equal with any English plantations in America. That Virginia shall be free of all taxes, customs, and impositions whatsoever, and none to be imposed on them without the consent of the Grand Assembly. And so that neither forts nor castles be erected or garrisons maintained without their consent. End quote. Uh, and obviously you don't have to think too hard about why Jefferson included this document in his summary of, of of Virginia's political history. He even gets commentary on it saying that they secured these rights, quote, they secured the ancient limits of their country, its free trade, its exemptions for taxations, but by their own assembly and exclusion of military forces from among them. So he highlights this directly in his commentary on that. Um, law. Um, and then he sort of uh, just jumps very quickly to a century later in the American Revolution. And he talks about the Virginian Constitution, which he has a lot of criticisms of. And when he was in the legislature uh, of, of Virginia later on, he served as a governor for one year of Virginia. He was very interested in kind of reforming this constitution. And that was what he did and he lists basically his criticisms of the constitution in this section as well the franchise he thought was too limited uh the voting delegations and the representation was too homogenous there was unequal representation um, and there was little balance of power essentially he thought there was too much power in the assembly and a tendency towards despotism in the in the constitution overall and the passage the chapter actually ends with a warning to the readers that the situation in Virginia is perilous and there needs to be a reform of the of the Constitution to defend certain certain rights. So he seems, seems to be quite skeptical of the Virginia Constitution and, and I'll, I'll come back to this question when we look at some of his letters and, and we'll keep it in mind as we go through the other documents in this this massive collection of Jefferson's writing. 
Query 14 is on justice and law, and this is another one that's really, really interesting. And probably, you know, if you stop after Query 14, you wouldn't, I think, miss out on too much. I think, but Query 14 may be the most important, especially if you're interested in, in what he has to say on race. There's another passage that you need to kind of touch at, but this has really the core of his conversation about race. Um, and he talks about the various aspects of, of the legal system in Virginia, how it reformed itself from the aristocratic constitution that they inherited from the British. Uh, there's discussions of poor laws and laws about debtors and bankruptcy. Um, of special interest would be the land laws here, uh, especially in regards to how people could claim land and how the land claims would be negotiated and the role of, of negotiating with Indians in, in having permanent land claims. And the history here is kind of interesting because initially you had to, if you, you had to like bring proof to the legislature or to the assembly, House of Burgesses or whatever, that you bought certain land from, from Indians before you could have claim to it. So, but here's what Jefferson writes. As the colony increased and individual applications for land multiplied, it was found to give too much occupation to the General Assembly to inquire into and execute the land grant in each special case. They therefore thought it better to establish general rules according to which all grants should be made and to leave to the governor the execution of them under these rules. This they did by what have been usually called the land laws, amending them from time to time as their defects were developed. According to these laws, when an individual wished a portion of unappropriated land, he was to locate and survey it by a public official, appointed for its purpose. Its breadth was to bear a certain proportion to its length. The grant was to be executed by the governor, on and on. Now, from these regulations, there resulted to the state a sole and exclusive power of taking conveyances on the Indian right of soil. Since according to them, an Indian conveyance alone could give no right to an individual which the laws would acknowledge, end quote. So I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So I, I maybe I'm reading this long, but it sounds like the laws essentially said we're not going to really respect Indian rights anymore. We're just going to assert domination of this land. And, and here's a legal foundation for, for, for empire. At least that's, that's how I read it. Um, but Jefferson's quite honest about it, um, saying even the state thereafter made general purposes of the purchases of the Indians from time to time. And the governor parceled them out by special grants conformed to the rules before described. So uh, it gave the state a lot more power over, over land, is, is, and it gave the executive a lot more authority over how land would be distributed. Um, what else is here? Oh, um, the poor laws are, are kind of fascinating about the, the special treatment of vagabonds and bankruptcy law. If you're interested, there's not that much about class in this book overall, but if you, there's a little bit here to, to parse out. But really, the really uh, I think the most important section in this is when he starts to talk about laws about emancipation, because he he seems to want to have a general emancipation law of some sort that would lead to some kind of uh, deportation of of African Americans or former slaves. So he, he his opposition to slavery is always framed in in racist language about the fact that this is a white republic and that we really can't whites and blacks can't coexist in this experiment we're trying and he even asked this directly as a question um, now bear in mind this is simply a query on the laws of virginia and he's the one who brings up race here uh, he's not there's actually no query of any of the 23 queries are about race specifically it's whenever race is brought up it's jefferson bringing it up you know, to because it's on his mind. It's something he's thinking a lot about. 
And he asked the question, why not retain and incorporate the blacks into the state and thus save the expenses supplying by importation of white settlers the vacancies they will leave? Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites. 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained. New pro- pro- provocations. The real distinction which nature has made and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convuls- convulsions which will probably never end. But in the extermination of one or the other race. So these objections, which are political, may be offered others, which are physical and moral, end quote. Now, he could have stopped there saying, like, there's too much bad blood and we can't live together. But no, he has to add the moral and, and uh, what was it, Mor- physical and moral arguments for this. And this then gets him into a conversation about the biological difference, really a conversation about race. And here's some of his most unfortunate commentary on race that that we have well i'm sure the letters have some doozies but this is um in his book um this is the famous passage where he goes so far as to say even the great poet american poet phyllis wheatley who was a slave um, but a great new england poet uh, jefferson can't even bring himself to acknowledge that she's a poet saying religion indeed has produced a phyllis wheatley but it could not produce a poet the compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism End quote, which is uh, a horrifying thing to read. He simply can't acknowledge the intellectual quality of, of black people. He goes so far as to bring up the Romans, Roman slavery to try to argue that it's not the condition of slavery which inhibits intellectual achievement, but race, saying if Romans could produce great slave you know, writers and thinkers, why couldn't, why, why can't, Black people in America, completely ignoring the deep differences in the social conditions of, of, of the examples he's pulling, he's picking from Roman history uh, with the conditions of most slaves in, in North America. And the strange thing is he even gives examples from Roman history of, of slaves being freed, uh, social mobility among slaves, things that weren't being weren't possible for most African-American slaves. So a really tough passage to to get through and to uh, to stomach. Um, he takes the nature versus nurture debate and says it's all nature. Um, and then after talking about uh, black people in these unfortunate ways, he simply turns around to talk about reform of punishment, uh, reform of aristocracy, right? Getting rid of uh, like the legal changes to end aristocracy public laws about public education and all that. So it's, it's a really huge section, though, and it, it's worth examining in, in detail, I think. But the heart of it and, and the reason we come back and read this so often has to do with Jefferson's rather unfortunate observations about, about race. It's the best argument we have about um, best, some of the best evidence we have of Jefferson's overt views on, on black people. Um. Chapter, uh, query 15 is on public infrastructure, which is, I, I, I mean, I think what's useful about this passage is it accepts the need for public infrastructure and investment in, in infrastructure. It acknowledges the role of the state in this, in these areas. Um, now, much of the chapter talks about the climactic effects of Virginia's kind of environment on infrastructure and, and you know, to what degree does 
the climate, you know, break down buildings and, and roads and, and things like that. But the heart of this is is a call for the need for a public space for for infrastructure. Um, chapter query 16 is about the fate of the Tories. And this really gets into the, you know, there's different types of Tories. Jefferson points out there were people who just were pro-British during the war, but kind of were just in their heart, right? It was like a thought crime. And, and he doesn't really, he just kind of ignores that. But then there were the people who really didn't want to stay in America, went to Canada or went to Jamaica or went to some other place. And the question of what happened to their property you know, they would have been foreigners then owning property in America. And he gets into the legal issues of, of foreign ownership of, of property. And basically, these Tories were people who surrendered their, their citizenship, seems to be the way it is. But he does differentiate people who are like Tory in their heart from people who were actively uh, pro-British after the war. Query 17 is on religion. And this is a really good section if you want to review Jefferson's views on the freedom of conscience. Conscience. He talks about the path of Virginia from kind of having a state religion to developing freedom of conscience. Of course, Jefferson was very, very proud of his role in, in establishing the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom, which I think we'll look at in the next episode in more detail. But he does talk about a discussion of religious establishment and and its values it it's it's upsides and its downsides i think it's a it's a fairly fascinating and even-handed discussion of of the whole question of of religious establishment now i i live in in china currently i'm recording this in taiwan because i'm on vacation but i'm, I'm living in china these days and and their constitution gives religious freedom but within certain limits saying you know only regular practices should be allowed and the result of this has been quite a lot of state regulation and religious practice and the banning of certain churches that are deemed abnormal. Um, Jefferson actually takes up this question a little bit saying, you know, are there religions that can be kind of devastating to public morality and things like that? But he says overall, the, the benefit of, of freedom of conscience is that it contributes to Kind of the freedom of investigation and, and free thought and conversation. It's it's an extension. It's it's how we get to truth is through, uh, well, through free inquiry. Quote: To make way for these reason and persuasion. Oh, let me go back. Reason and persuasion are the only practical instruments. To make way for these, free inquiry must be indulged. And how can we wish others to indulge it while we refuse it ourselves? But every state says the inquisitor has established some religion. Not to say I have established the same. Is this a proof of infallibility of establishments? Our sister states in Pennsylvania, New, New York, however, have long subsided without any establishment at all. The establishment was new and doubtful when they made it. It has been answered behind conception. They flourish infinitely. Religion is well supported of various kinds indeed, but all good enough, all sufficient to preserve peace and order. Or if a sect arises where tenants would subvert morals, good sense has fair play and reasons and laugh it out of the door without suffering the state to be troubled with it. They do not hang more malefactors than we do. They are not more disturbed with religious dissensions. On the contrary, their harmony is unparalleled and as can be ascribed to nothing but their unbowed tolerance because there is no other circumstance in which they differ from every nation on earth. End quote. Which uh, I, I agree with. I think it's, uh, it's, it's essentially the argument made and the, you know, the, the justification behind the Virginia Statute on Religious Liberties. So that, that's query 17. Query 18 brings us back to slavery. The question is, 
seems to invite a very long and detailed answer on culture. The question is the particular customs and manners that may happen to be received in that state. You you think you'd have a lot to say about that. Differences between the tidewater versus the frontier, black culture versus white culture, um, class-based culture. But Jefferson doesn't want to talk about that. He goes right back to race. Uh, Again, I'm, I'm convinced he's obsessed with these things. Uh, we got some more of his his famous statements on, on race here. Um, and that's really where he sees the divide in culture in Virginia is between whites and blacks. Quote, it is difficult to determine on the standard by which the manners of a nation may be tried, whether Catholic or particular. It is more difficult for a native to bring to that standard the manners of his own nation, familiarized to him by habit. There must doubtless be an unhappy influence on the manners of our people produced by the existence of slavery among us. End quote. Essentially, he's saying the bad aspects of our culture are brought on by slavery. Of course, he, he doesn't think slavery is good for slaves or for masters. That, that's the argument here. Quote, the whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this and learn to imitate it, for man is an imitative animal. This quality is the germ of education in him, end quote. Now, I know there's a little bit of imagination, but if you want to know, you know, what the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson was, you might want to be benevolent and say it's, it's you know, based on some deal or, or some mutual affection. And, and I can't say one way or another about that. But here, Jefferson seems to see the relationship between master and slave is based on tyranny and despotism and passions on the one and degrading submissions on the other. I'm, I, I'm acknowledging it's a leap to take that description and put it in the bedroom. But I don't see no reason not to at least suggest that this translates into the bedroom in Jefferson's case. He's again, this document, this whole book shows he's obsessed with race. Three or four times, completely uninvited, he brings up the question of, of slavery and race. Um, now, the heart of this short, short answer, it's only about a page and a half, is slavery is bad for white people and it's bad for black people. And it's corrupting the culture of, of Virginia. Um, query 19 is on manufacturing, commerce, trade. And basically, this is, we see him idealizing the farmer, essentially saying Virginia doesn't need, doesn't need no stinking trade, doesn't need no industry. Uh, Quote, while we have land to labor on, let us never wish to see our citizens occupied at a workbench or twirling a distaff. Carpenters, Mason, Smith are wanting in husbandry, but for the general operations of manufacturers, let our workshop, let the workshops remain in Europe. We all know this. This is the... This is Jefferson's agrarian ideal. Um, but the corruption of the marketplace is is a, his major concern. Uh, query 20 is on commercial production and just basically what Virginia exports. And interestingly for him idealizing the countryside, he comes back here and actually talks about the bad influence of tobacco economically and on morals. And he doesn't think tobacco is a crop that Virginia should be particularly proud of, despite it being one of their biggest exports. And he gives like examples of, of just the cash focus 
I think it's the, maybe the partially the cash focus emphasis of tobacco plantations, him saying they're not really self-sufficient. They don't really grow food and farmers on tobacco plantations are malnourished and things like that. But he, you know, it's not his ideal. His ideal is not cash cropping. His ideal is, you know, I suppose, a self-sufficient factory, uh, family farm, not factory farm, family farm. Um, query 21 is on weights and measures. And this is basically, Jefferson has to say, it's indeterminate. In, in 1781, it still wasn't clear, you know, the, what the currency would be, what would this system for weights and measures. Of course, the Constitution will establish common weights and measures in currency for the, for the U.S. 22 is on public income and expenses. He gives the summaries of, of tax receipts and expenditures. Uh, he the real, I think the important thing he says here is there's basically a very poor use of, of, of money, of public money to build a standing military. But he generally thinks as the population grows, so will public expense, expenditures. But as we've seen in a previous section, he does think infrastructure is a relevant use of public dollars. And then the final query, 23, is a question of, of the historical documents that speak to Virginian history. And really, this is just a bibliography, by and large, going back to the 15th century even. It's a wonderful resource, actually, if you just want to you know, know the major sources on early Virginian history. Um, I'm sure there's other documents that have been discovered since then that are relevant, but I can't think of a better place to start than to read this. It's almost 20 pages of documents. A 20-page bibliography, chronologically listed uh, documents in many different languages, mostly English, but you got some Spanish and French documents here too. Uh, you know, talking about Virginia, it's it's just a wonderful reference. I think you have the dates um, and the the titles and where to find them. So it's a, it's a great place to go if you have a project on early Virginian history and you need to do some research on it. And then the book just sort of ends after after this list of, of documents so um that's my thoughts on or my read through of jefferson's notes on the state of virginia um i again i think our our core interest in this document is going to be in his views on the political system and laws and, and government of virginia what he says about the ecology of it of, of virginia and really race, whether it's regards to Native Americans or, or slavery, really going to frame how we look at the other documents he writes dealing with these questions. Um, I think a lot of what this book does, it does show the historical evolution of society in Virginia. It shows a big distinction, though, a big break between the old world and the new world. And I think that's a it's not as clearly a kind of what is American document as something like uh, uh, Letters from an American Farmer by Crevacor, which maybe you've read. I think it was actually written around the same time time period during the Revolution. That document is much more asking the question overtly, what is an American and how, they're, how are they different than Europeans? Jefferson doesn't come out that firmly and ask that question, but it's in the background of everything. So it's, it's constantly in the context. And the fact that he's addressing this essentially to a, a French legation, it's not surprising that that's, that's being hinted at throughout it. So I, I think that's one reason to go back and read this document. In a, in a, above and beyond trying to get a grasp of, of Jefferson's contradictory and very, very troubling racial politics. So anyways, I guess that does it for um, 
notes on the state of Virginia. I don't have anything else I really want to say about it. Um, in the next episode, I'll be getting looking at a section in this volume. Again, I'm reading the Library of America collection of Jefferson's writings. It's all in one volume. Um, public papers is the section. It's going to take me two episodes to get through the public papers. Um, I'll be looking at the public papers that are dated from 1775 to 1790, um, beginning with, uh, I think, the Olive Branch petition, uh, his draft constitution of Virginia, some of his legislation as a legislator in Virginia, and then uh, up through his 1790 document, plan for establishing uniformity in the coins, weights, and measures. So we'll look at those. And then in the next episode following that, we'll look at his criticism of the bank and some of his criticism of the of the Adams presidency and then some of the things he did after his presidency. Strangely, we don't have any documents here from his presidency himself from 1801 to 1809. Nothing he, no public papers from that period, but a um, bunch of stuff from before his presidency and a few things from after, including his uh, reports on the University of Virginia. So I look forward to, to reading these. I haven't jumped into them yet, but I look forward to reading them and giving you my thoughts on them. So um, now if you've read notes on the state of Virginia and you have your own thoughts about uh, what Jefferson wrote there, please uh, leave your comments below. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com as well. Um, but if that's all, uh, I will leave you for now and I'll see you next time where I'll start to look at some of Jefferson's uh, public, public official papers. Let's go.